when that interview was actually airing, the hashtag that was kind of going bonkers at the time was Black Women at Work. Welcome to the B2B Lead Gen Podcast, your weekly audio masterclass on converting leads to revenue. I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman, author of The Digital Pivot. Let's do this. Our guest today is Katie Kern. She is COO of Media Frenzy Global. Prior to that, she ran her own lifestyle PR agency where she guided emerging fashion and lifestyle companies. I am grateful to have her with us on this podcast. Katie Kern, welcome. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, And I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Now, Katie, you started as a retail coordinator for Reebok. And today you're the partner at a major PR marketing agency with offices in Atlanta and London. How'd you pull it off? Um, The leap from coordinator to where I am today, there's a long span in between there. So it It does take that long to me. (laughs) It, it did take some time. Um, that was one of the first um, jobs that I had out of college. And it was a very, very great launching pad for me. I got to work with a major global brand that um, I couldn't ask for anything better from a learning standpoint. You know, I was managing a, um, you know, millions of dollar budget, retail marketing budget. Um, got to meet a lot of the um, the players at the um, you know different retail brands that Reebok actually sold into, like Macy's and um, Nordstrom, those types of brands, and really understand um, how to market um, in a retail environment. And I had a lot of fun. I traveled a lot. Um, I got to meet a lot of great people, from celebrities to athletes, and um, and really learn how to um, represent a brand. Um, at a high level. So it was a great learning ground for me. Now, as a little girl, you took Katie as your first name in school, but it's not your given name, right? It's, it's not my given name. No. Um, Katie was much more um, easier to pronounce for sure. Um, my given name, my birth name is Akate, um, is African in origin. And on the first day of school, it was always kind of an anxiety written um, experience for me because I got into class and the teachers would literally butcher my name um, or didn't pronounce it at all. And they would just say my maiden name, which is Nelson. They would just say Nelson. And I would have to show them um, kind of the phonics and then pronounce my name correctly so that they could could get it and pronounce it. So it was it's really kind of um, ironic because, you know, it's in my household, our names stood for something and it's um, a, a pride thing that we carried in our that our parents you know instilled in us my sisters and I and when we went out into society it just was no longer accepted you know it was kind of a, um, a burden for people to pronounce my name so Katie was a nickname that was adopted that I've carried through to um, today. And what are your sisters names? Um, my two sisters names Kadada and Nzinga. And did they have a similar experience? Yeah, they both had a similar experience. You know, it just happens to be um, not widely used names, you know, in our country and um, to make people feel to, for us to feel more accepted and not get ridiculed for those names. You know, we kind of went with these nicknames um, that we all 
use today in our professional settings as well. Right, right. Now, I, I know you're, you're pretty bullish on Clubhouse, right? Yes, I'm definitely, um, I'm more of a listener than I am a host. I like to go in and just kind of listen to see what people have to say and, and to see what, how people are utilizing it from influencers to brands um, to better inform our clients on the best way of utilizing Clubhouse. So yes. not hosting, but more of a listener. I saw um, some of the groups that you had joined and I joined a couple of them. I'm just sort of coming up to speed myself. Um, how are you using it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's more for, you know, since we're kind of, you know, we're still in a pandemic, um, it's not necessarily, um, people aren't out and about. So they've, they've utilized Clubhouse as kind of our, a, a virtual event platform where, you know, people can go in and um, invite speakers to come in and speak on various topics. Um, I'm very interested um, and passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. So I do spend a lot of time in those types of um, rooms. And I get a lot of educational information from people who are experts um, in that field. And I also get a lot of um, information from people who are not experts and kind of exit stage left when I see that there's not, you know, helpful information being communicated to this community of people. So it's a learning ground for sure. And just trying to figure out different ways for our clients um, to utilize the platform in various different ways. And, and events is one of them. Any specific ideas you're sort of playing with right now or ideas you have for how maybe to, uh, you know, use Clubhouse for clients? Yeah, you know, we've actually, um, during South by Southwest, um, we had, you know, some clients that were participating in the virtual um, exhibitors and things of that nature. And one way that we were actually able to get some of our clients um, people that visited their virtual booth is to send them over to Clubhouse for kind of like an after party. So after discussion type scenarios. So there was something that our client was launching during South by Southwest. And to continue that conversation, we moved them over to the Clubhouse platform and had some really great conversation with some possible prospects. And it really turned out, you know, as a great way to, to educate and to also, um, you know, meet a community of people that are interested in our clients. Well, what's the difference between Clubhouse and Twitter Spaces? Different platforms. Um, I believe that right now Twitter Spaces is, is in kind of like in pilot mode, beta mode right now. So there's certain people that they've allowed to, um, to get on the platform and utilize Twitter Spaces. Um, I've been able to get in to Twitter Spaces, get invited to Twitter um, Spaces, um, you know, different events that are happening. Right now it's in trial. Um, I find it to be very easy um, from a UX standpoint. It looks better. It's what Twitter. is it? Explain it to us. What is Twitter Spaces? Twitter Spaces, actually, it's a, a version of Clubhouse. There's, you know, there's a host, um, various hosts, there's listeners. Um, but the UX of it is, is much prettier and much more sophisticated. Um, and it's inside. More sophisticated than Clubhouse? Yes. So you like the UI of Twitter Spaces better than Clubhouse? I do. I do. And it's inside of the Twitter platform. So there's a lot of things that, because what happens in Clubhouse is that you actually have to connect with people, leave the platform to connect with people on Twitter. That's how it's connected. 
Um, and then when you're in the platform for Twitter spaces, you're, you're in that platform and you get to utilize the different features, which is the Twitter spaces um, is one of their features. So I do find it to be a lot more um, sophisticated and advanced from a UX standpoint, but right now it's in beta. So there's not a lot of people that are in those conversations. So right now it's really, really intimate, very intimate, kind of when what? Club first started because it's invite only. One of my um, favorite thought leaders, a guy I really respect a lot, Brian Solis, mm -hmm. is a digital anthropologist um, and uh, chief evangelist over at Salesforce. Mm -hmm. And I caught on uh, Twitter um, that he was actually giving a keynote um, yeah. as part of Salesforce on Twitter spaces this week. I didn't actually see it, but I thought, hmm, that's a pretty good idea that they got him for that. You know, it's interesting because um, you can be following someone but you have to be at a certain level or an active participant on Twitter in order to get invited to um, participate in spaces. It's in that type of beta format right now. So um, it, it's gonna be interesting to see how when they actually un, like literally launch and everyone's able to use it, I think it's going to be a little bit overwhelming because people use it for very um, non-work related Things. I mean, I actually saw someone using it for a Price is Right type um, room. Um, they were playing cards, Uno, in one room. It was all sorts of things that people use it for. Um, but for me, it's really about going into those spaces. I follow um, hashtag marketing Twitter on Twitter. So I utilize um, those contacts and go into those rooms to kind of get more informed and educated on what people are talking about um, in, in our space. Interesting. People who are struggling to compete online come to me for help, and they're usually confused about why they can't generate new business online. Most of them have a website and are doing content marketing and social media, but it's not working. When they come to me, they think they need a better website or more followers. They mention companies like Shopify, Grubhub, and Peloton who are killing it online, and they wonder what those guys do differently. If you want to know why some digital companies outperform, get my book, The Digital Pivot, and find out what it takes to build a modern revenue engine. You can listen to the first chapter for free at digitalpivotbook.com. The Digital Pivot explains how to stack business value with digital technology. By focusing on fundamentals first, the book maps out a framework for competing online by taking a sequential approach to owned, shared, and earned media outreach. And it also unlocks positioning opportunities for PR and marketing professionals who want to help their clients win online. The Digital Pivot is available as a hardcover, ebook, and audiobook. And you can download the first chapter free at digitalpivotbook.com. Hey, uh, let's talk for a minute about the Meghan Markle interview. Ah, yes. Um, so talk to me, like, what, what are your thoughts on what happened there? Help us sort of unpack what went down. And, and I'd be interested to know, in addition, as a public relations person, how, if you feel she got her message across effectively. You know, that, that interview was done really well and it was done by the right person. Oprah Winfrey is a, um, a master at interviewing. 
And I don't know if a lot of people understand that there's a lot of pre-work that goes into those types of interviews. It's not like she hasn't spoken to Harry and Megan prior to that interview airing. A lot of work went into that interview. So when people see things like that unfold, it's not by chance. You know, some of the answers that are, you know, Oprah was actually um, given from Megan and Harry. Um, so it's, it's for TV. It was done for entertainment purposes. So I think people have to really understand that from a PR perspective, because if she didn't have those sound bites to kind of intrigue everyone to tune in, not as many people would have tuned in. So I want to kind of put that out there as a disclaimer, but she asked the right questions. Um, Megan was very, very forthcoming with um, her answers. Um, the way that she presented herself, she was very calm. She wasn't overly emotional. Um, and I felt like she really resonated with, which was most importantly, Black women. When that interview was actually airing, the hashtag that was kind of going bonkers at the time was Black women at work. And the reason why, it's not a new hashtag, it's something that has been going on for quite a while, but black, that's a, a hashtag that Black women use who are in the workplace, who are being mistreated, and that's where they go to vent on Twitter. So that was a place where Black women were like, I finally felt seen. It took this opportunity, this interview with Meghan Merkel to uncover kind of the, um, the workplace, because, you know, the role, the crown is an institution in itself. And I think a lot of people have know that now because of the movie, the miniseries, The Crown on Netflix. And it was very, very um, eye-opening for a lot of people. A lot of people um, respect and hold the crown in high regard. But unfortunately, there's a lot of institutional racism that have existed forever. And now they were exposed. They were truly exposed. And unfortunately, I don't think from a PR perspective that they handled the response very well. They were very late to responding. Um, it should have been an immediate um, announcement that came out. Probably not, they didn't say very much. It should have been advocating for Megan, apologizing to Megan for how they made her feel. And then they, they should have been able to take that offline and, and just kind of, you know, move on with the private mat, you know, move on with those matters privately. But from a PR perspective, they did not handle that well at all. And I think that Megan and Harry um, in the US came out, you know, really shining and people really, you know, empathizing with them for sure. If, if Oprah hired you, for advice on how she might have improved the interview. Is there anything you'd, you'd tell her? <laughs> it, it's Oprah. So um, from that standpoint- It's Oprah, but she hired you. Yeah, you know, from that perspective, you know, it probably should have been so many of the, um, the shocking moments that are now memes, you know, that we all see. It, it should, should have been more of, her kind of making sure that she wasn't trying to make it more of a drama 
and really getting people to understand what Megan went through while she was, Megan and Harry, what they went through. Um, It was really focused. It was highly focused on race. Um, And I probably would have said to her, hey, you might want to, there's some some other things that probably should have been discussed in that interview as well, but it was hyper-focused on race. And that was intentionally done because of, you know, where we are right now in this country and around the world, actually. Is there anything the queen could do now from a damage control standpoint to try to, you know, repair things? You know, it's interesting. Um, I don't know if you've seen that they are looking for a diversity, equity and inclusion person. Um, The royals are. They're looking to hire someone that actually was just released, I think, this week. Um, They're looking for someone to come in and help you know, look at the inner workings um, of their institution and how they can do better moving forward. Um, That in itself, I feel like is not the right step forward because this is actually a family member that this was done to. It's not like this was an employee. I know that they have the different roles and responsibilities, but she's actually a family member. And the way that they probably, the queen herself, should have probably made a statement about her talking to Harry and Meghan to rectify this because she wants to get her family back on the right track. I haven't seen anyone say that they're going to extend an olive branch to Harry or Meghan and and try to really resolve this issue because it's very public. It's very, very painful. Um, There was a, um, you know, a woman on the verge of committing suicide And if that is not taken seriously, I don't know what is. And I think that that's the way it should have been dealt with to make sure that this, that they actually are doing something about um, those types of things because she lost a child and she wanted to take her own life because she was so unhappy. Yeah, yeah, difficult situation. Um, Let's switch gears for a second because uh, Georgia Republicans just passed a sweeping voter suppression law designed to make it harder for the state's black population to vote. If Georgia state Democrats said to you, Katie, what PR or public affairs campaign could we mount to reverse these voter suppression efforts? What would you say? Let's call on Stacey Abrams again. You know, Stacey Abrams was vital in the free fight Um, initiative that she had just to get people to come out and to vote, ways to vote, different ways that people can vote, you know, whether it was early voting, getting people to understand what their rights are, what the laws are. It's still, for whatever reason, this education that's needed around voting. You know, with this new law in place, you can't eat or drink in line during voting. And we knew, we all know those lines in Georgia, I'm speaking of specifically because I'm hyper aware of it. They were long, hours and hours that people were waiting in line, having, you know, older people not having access to water and food just to try to go to vote. And you would literally, you would possibly get arrested because this is something that, you know, you, you're hungry or you're thirsty because you're waiting in a line that's two hours or, or more. This is the time for people to really think about how to educate everyone 
not just Georgians, but everyone across the nation that you have to understand what your rights are. And if you don't, then you are at risk from being someone who's going to be oppressed when you go and try to vote. So right now I would put together an educational campaign. Let's let it, let's make this go viral because people need to know what their rights are because if you show up to the polls and you're not adhering to these new laws that are, or that are in place, you, are, you have, there is a possibility that you may be arrested or turned How away. in the hell does anyone get a law like that passed? How could anybody vote for something like that? You live in the South, you know Georgia, you know Atlanta. Unpack the mind of someone who is going to support that type of a policy. Who are these people? Unfortunately, it's people who want to keep the minorities suppressed. We saw what happened with Georgia. Georgia turned blue during the presidential election. It took an act of God and Black women to make that happen. Because once again, Stacey Abrams was at the forefront of that, that movement. And when you saw the power of this woman along with all these other people alongside her to, to make something like that, that was a historical moment in time, you're gonna do everything that you possibly can, every loophole that you could possibly think of to make sure that that doesn't happen again, you're gonna do that. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people that are in office right now who don't belong there, who are not for all people and that has to change. So we have a lot of work to do in Georgia when it comes to putting the right people in place so that we don't have these laws passed um, in the future. These um, social media bubble algorithms that uh, increase session time by showing us more of the same content we're already looking at um, have really, for the first time in my lifetime, polarized white America. Mm. And for the first time in my life, white people don't agree on civic reality. Mm -hmm. And everyone has a different sense of what the truth is. But it occurs to me, having been awakened to the depths of systemic injustice by the 1619 Project, mm -hmm. the murder of George Floyd, and so many other popular movies like the United States versus Billie Holiday, that shared civic reality is really something people of color have never enjoyed in this country. And there's a, a different sense of what's real in the black community than what's real in the white community. And you see this gap repeatedly lampooned on black Twitter. You know, it's sort of a place to let off the steam and joke about it. So coming from that perspective of alternate civic realities, what would you like white listeners to understand about what it means to be Black in America today? You know, it, it really did take um, the murder of George Floyd to awaken a lot of people because, you know, I've been, so many of us have been coming to um, you know, to the forefront saying there's racial profiling, there's injustices here in this industry, injustices here in that industry. And for whatever reason, white America just do not believe 
the um, the grievances of black people. They just they just cannot fathom that you could be discriminated against for whatever reason. And it took that moment in time. This video, this this video literally spread out and went viral. It was polarizing to see a man on the ground with someone's knee on their neck, choking the life out of them in order for to wake people up. This man had to scream, this grown man had to scream for his mother during that time to, to open the eyes of white America. And to me, that's the, that's the hurtful part of not being taken seriously and not being um, believed. I have gone to human resources on numerous occasions saying that I've been mistreated, microaggressions, whatever the case may be. And I'm not an overly sensitive person. I, I feel like I can take a lot. But when I, if I go to you know, a place where I feel like I should be able to feel um, included in the conversation and feel like these people have my back and I'm told, I think you're overreacting. Being told that over and over again, at a certain point, you're just like, you know what? <laughs> I give up. I, I, I just give up. I just, I can't even deal with this any longer. And for white America, what I would like to say is believe black people. <laughs> when we tell you that there are injustices, when we tell you that there's microaggressions, when we tell you that we're not being paid equal to do the exact same job, when we say we don't have opportunities, believe us. And then ask us a question and let's have a conversation about it because sometimes it's a lack of understanding that doesn't allow people to have that empathy. And I encourage people to get out of your bubble, get out of the suburbs, and really it's not about going to the projects because that's done all the time. White people love to go to the projects and lift black people up. I've never lived in the projects a day in my life. <laughs> and I really want people to understand that it takes understanding in, in order to know how someone else is feeling and then being able to have that discussion on how to move things forward. So my call, my rally cry to white people is ask us how you can help and also get out of the way if you're not willing to. Last week on uh, 60 Minutes, Lloyd Austin, the first African-American Secretary of Defense, and other top African-American military officials were interviewed about how they have to moderate their behavior to rise through the ranks. And they said things like, you know, they had to have a less imposing posture. They couldn't be too loud. They had to be gentle with their language. Uh, they couldn't be too threatening. What has your experience been at, like as you've risen through the ranks professionally uh, and how have you moderated your behavior? You know, Eric, it's, it's interesting because code switching is real in the Black community. And when I say code switching, the way that I interact with um, family members or even friends that are Black will probably not be necessarily the way that I go into the office. I can't be my authentic self when I go into the office. 
Um, I'm actually right now restraining myself from using my hands. So I lock my hands in place um, because if my hands are going too much, it's offensive to some people and to, to white people. They, they feel threatened if I'm moving my hands too, too much. Um, and I see people do it all the time, professional people, CEOs of major corporations being very animated and moving their hands. But when a black person, especially a black woman, does it, it comes off as being threatened. And, and that's actually yeah. scientifically known. They've done studies on it. Um, even to the point where um, not having, raising your voice. If I'm passionate about something, it comes off as being angry. If a white woman is passionate about something, you know, it's, it comes off as being she's passionate. So I have to make sure that I'm speaking at a certain level, not to get someone, you know, uneasy, you know, to be around me. Um, even to the way that I look on in a work environment. Yes, today, I'm, you know, a lot more casual because we're working from home, but you would normally see me in an office setting. My hair is normally straight. Um, I'm very much buttoned up and pulled together at all times. I would never in a million years um, previously worn my hair in its natural state because what happens? There's so many questions around it. Why is your hair like that today? What is your hair? What do you do with your hair? Why is your hair curly? Why is your hair straight? All these sorts of questions that becomes the topic of conversations in conference, on conference calls or um, in meetings with clients. And I'm feeling like, why are we having this conversation when we should be talking about something else? Because this conversation would never happen if this was someone, one of my white counterparts. So it's, it's offensive. And if you bring that to someone's attention, then that means that you're, you're being, this, you're, you're too sensitive, Katie. You cannot possibly think that someone was trying to hurt your feelings or, or make you feel uncomfortable. So I get it. You know, it's, it's very, very hard to navigate sometimes um, in these settings, but I've done it for so long, it's become second nature. So it really is, you know, who is the real K Katie Kern when she comes to work? Um, who knows? Because I've never been able to do that until recently because I'm a partner at an agency and I have ownership. It's, it's almost like you're damned if you do or damned if you don't, because on the one hand, you have to enable the unconscious bias of white people to get ahead financially, but at the same time, doing so perpetuates the same systemic injustice and racial inequality that created I, what's a sort of codependent nightmare and I'm wondering if you feel like subjugating your own identity, which you did when you were a little girl with your name, you know, to make others feel comfortable is one of the reasons you've been so successful as a black woman living in a racist country. Oh, absolutely. It's, there's no question. I mean, I did everything that I possibly could do to erase my blackness in order to be accepted in white America. Absolutely. Every decision I had to make was consciously done in order to make sure that I was successful in white America. And until I was able to be, have my own agency with Circa PR and also a partner with Media Frenzy Global, I have not been able, to, I can honestly say I'm comfortable in my skin when I go into these professional settings. You know, um, I loved uh, the United States versus Billie Holiday. My mom, 
loved Billie Holiday. And that was sort of the soundtrack of my childhood. Mm -hmm. And uh, she used to say things about her when I was a kid that I didn't really understand. But I was talking to a friend of mine who happens to be a black woman and asked her if she saw the United States versus Billie Holiday. And she rolled her eyes and she said no. And she told me that when she was a kid, her father pulled the Encyclopedia Britannica off the shelf, opened it up to the court case, the United States versus Billie Holiday, sat her down and said, I'm going to teach you this because you're certainly not going to learn it in school. Because we don't teach American history honestly in public schools, which I believe is a huge part of the problem and something that 1619 Project could solve if we adopted that. Of course, we saw the Trump administration take an active stance to, against that last time around. But, but when I asked her if she liked the movie, she said, you know, I've already been through that stuff. I don't want to go through it again. Now, she's my age. Uh, but I wonder, you know, a young woman like you, do you have the same reaction to a film like that? Did you watch it? Did you enjoy it? What did you think about it? You know, what I did enjoy about it, um, because it is a movie, is um, I was introduced to um, the music of Billie Holiday. Um, I'm familiar with her music, but I was I truly thoroughly enjoyed just um, getting to know her as a woman. Um, her story is and, and I can honestly say this, it's not unique. I didn't find her story to be unique because you can look back on a lot of other black, um, you know, performers um, in that day, their, their, their situation is not any different at all. Um, whether they took a stance, you know, on, you know, these types of issues and these injustices were that were happening during that time, absolutely. You know, she was someone who was going to stand up for her rights and um, to, the, to the point where, you know, she could have been killed. In, at any given point, she could have died because of the stance that she did take um, during that time. But one of the things that I, I can say about, you know, during um, with Billie Holiday as a, as a black woman is that, um, and, I, and I do hope black women listen to this podcast because it's so important um, to know your worth. It's so important to know that you're valued. And there's so many people out there who want to, um, to bring you down, who don't think um, very much of you, but I, I felt in that moment watching that she knew what her worth was. And, and that's what I took away from it. You know, of course, you know, there's a, a racial story there and, um, and I've seen that many times, but I didn't take away, I wasn't like, oh, this is, you know, something new when it comes to racial injustices for a black woman um, in entertainment. But what I did take away from it is that, you know, she stood her ground. Um, and she knew her worth. And I think that the more that black women, uh, minority women in general start knowing their worth, I, I do believe that, you know, we can bind together and unite and make change um, because we do need to start standing up for um, what we truly believe in. Um, my mother passed away many years ago, but when I was watching the movie, I felt a closeness to her that I've never mm -hmm. really felt before, understanding that there was so much more to this woman that she idolized than just her music. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, gosh, uh, uh, Katie Kern, COO of Media Frenzy Global. If people want to get a hold of you, what, how can they do that? 
Um, the best way to get in contact with me, um, I'm a Twitter user. Um, it's my first and foremost platform of choice um, at Katie Kern and also on LinkedIn. Um, I'm Katie Kern there as well. So um, I hope people do reach out to me, continue this discussion um, because I'm an open book and I would love to help anyone that looking for any sort of marketing help or even to talk about, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. To master B2B lead generation, you can listen to the first chapter of my new book, The Digital Pivot, for free at digitalpivotbook.com. <laughs>